This is Many Voices, One World. I'm your host, George Pompeianis. Not to overdo the meteorological metaphors, it would seem, though, that we are in a perfect storm for news on climate change this fall. From the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report in September to the world scientists' warning that came out in early November, and still to come, COP25, the UN Climate Change Conference in December, which has been dubbed the Blue Cop for the increased focus on ocean and climate issues. To help us navigate our way through all of this, I am pleased to welcome Peter Thompson, the United Nations Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Ocean, to our studios in Paris this day. Peter Thompson, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Pleasure to be here in Paris. Your, your head must be spinning. How do you keep track of all of this news and information, data, and then put it to use in terms of what your job is as the special envoy, raising awareness about this issue and trying to get us to focus? Uh, thanks for that, George. Look, my main job is making sure that SDG 14, which is the Sustainable Development Goal uh, for the ocean, uh, it's about conserving and sustainably using the ocean's resources, so in, in, in going around and advocating for the implementation of that around the world, uh, I have to be uh, advised by the best of science. And the best place to get that, of course, is in these reports which you're referring to, the IPCC reports, the IPBES reports, and so on. So they're, they're extremely useful fuel for the message that I have to get across to uh, the world which is that the ocean's health is in deep trouble and we need to do something about it. We need to reverse the cycle of decline in which it's been caught. And if the ocean's health is in trouble, then definitely the planet's health is in jeopardy. Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. You cannot have a healthy planetary ecosystem if you don't have a healthy ocean ecosystem. And as I said, uh, the warning signs are there that the ocean's health is in trouble. So, uh, yeah, we've got work to do to uh, make sure that that uh, ocean ecosystem is healthy because our health depends on it. I can give you an example, if you like, of a, a direct one. Uh, I hold in uh, many of the speeches that I have that our fate as a species may be intimately linked with that of coral. Why do I say that? Because the IPCC report on the, uh, the 1.5 report... Uh, makes it clear that w when we go through that dreaded barrier of two degrees global warming since the beginning of the industrial age, when we go through that two degree barrier, we basically have lost at that stage about 95% of the world's coral reefs. And as we progress uh, uh, onwards from two degrees, obviously the, the remaining 5% go now, this is a, a, a huge predicament for us for two reasons. One is that the coral reefs are the bunkers of biodiversity for the ocean's ecosystem, that healthy ecosystem which I was referring to. 30% of the biodiversity taken out in one hit. Do we know what that will mean for the health of the ocean's ecosystem? No, we, the honest answer is we don't at this stage. Uh, but, you know, good sense would tell you it's not going to be good for the, uh, the, the ecosystem. So if, if that's the case for the ocean's ecosystem, what does it say for the planetary ecosystem? And here's the predicament. The predicament is that we're not heading just towards two degrees. On current trajectories, we're heading towards a three to four degree 
uh, global warming since the Industrial Age. So it's it's serious matter that we're discussing here. And if I'm not mistaken, we've already lost some 50% of the coral reefs in the last 30 years. So there's been a message coming to us for quite some time. Why aren't we listening? Uh, that's a quandary, George. I, uh, I wonder because it, it is obviously so existential for us as a species. Uh, one of the things I have come to a conclusion of is that Gandhi was right when he said that there's enough on this planet for humanity's needs, but there's not enough for our greed. And uh, I think if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, you get to the nub of it, where in Sustainable Development Goal 12, it says that we have to change our consumption and production patterns. This is the key to it, I think. We have to change our ways. We have to relearn how to live in harmony with nature. And next year is going to be a pivotal year in that regard. And why is that? In 2020, uh, you've got a series of conferences. Now, I know a lot of people, when they hear the word conferences, they immediately get a burnout in their brain. But the fact is, we need, as a global community, to gather ourselves in this series of conferences next year to get to the end of the year and be in that position to look back and say, OK, we've, we know how to do this now. Now, what are these conferences? Firstly, there's the UN Ocean Conference in Lisbon in June which is the universal moment for all countries and uh, corporations and philanthropies to come together and agree on, um, in this case, better science and innovation for ocean action. So that's the Ocean Conference. And then we move on to the IUCN, which is the main conservation organization in the world, as having their, their, their ministerial congress, which only happens once every four years. And so both this Ocean Congress uh, in Lisbon and the conference in Lisbon and the Congress, in, which are being held in Marseille, the IUCN one, roll on then to the UN Biodiversity COP, which is being held in Kunming in China. And this is where the new set of targets are going to be set for uh, biodiversity, which is basically, you know, saving life on the planet. You know, introducing concepts like uh, 30% of the ocean should be uh, in marine protected areas by 2030, things like that. Um, but probably more, most importantly of all in terms of this process of conferences next year in 2020, which I call a super year for, for, for nature, is the climate COP, which is going to be held in Glasgow in December. Because this, under the Paris Agreement, that, that COP26, as it's called, in Glasgow, is the COP where we all have to come, our countries all have to come and up their ambition by way of what are called nationally determined contributions. Glasgow is the moment for that. Natu nationally determined contributions. Yeah, because the Paris what climate... What does that mean? Well, the Paris climate leaves it upon us as countries to uh, dictate what we're going to do in terms of policies, you know, uh, in terms of the action that we're going to take to cut our greenhouse gas uh, emissions, for example. This has to be done within countries. Of course, it's done within cities and provinces and so on as well. But in terms of reporting under the Paris Agreement, it's done by countries through these nationally determined contributions. And we had set COP26, which is now going to be held in Glasgow, Scotland next year, as the moment where we come with these enhanced uh, nationally determined contributions. And the reason that, that is probably the one ring that rules them all is that, you know, you cannot have the success in, in saving life in the ocean. You cannot have success in readdressing our, our, our relationship with nature when, at the Kunming Conference if we don't sort out the climate uh, ambition uh, at the Glasgow COP. 
So the message there is, you know, biodiversity, ocean health, climate, it's all one thing. Copying, of course, these climate change conferences, which we have one that's going to be coming up in December in Madrid, which is COP25. Correct. So what's the objective coming out of COP25 to make COP26, and I hope I'm not disturbing people's jargon quotient here, but to make the next climate change conference next year on mark a success. What what are we establishing next month? Yeah. Okay, well, I think first for your listeners, because I can remember I was first confused when I heard about it way back when, uh, COP just means Conference of Parties. COP is a shortening, uh, an acronym for Conference of Parties, and these are the parties to any convention. In this case, the UN Convention on uh, Climate Change, right? Uh, so that's what the, why it's called a COP. And this is the 26th uh, conference of parties um, under the UNFCCC, it's called. That's the climate uh, arm of the United Nations. So um, you, you can hear from that that there's been many of these meetings. They're held annually. The uh, uh, So this is the 26th one um, being held in Glasgow. So COP25, which was to have been held in Chile but is now being held in Madrid... Um, is called the Blue Cop, and this is the first time that it's kind of orthodox that the you know the ocean is essential part of climate change negotiations, and uh, this has been coming for a while, but it's finally come to fruition in COP25, which is the fact that you can't have um, climate negotiations without factoring in the ocean's role, both in terms of a carbon sink, you know, it's the biggest one we've got in both in terms of how it's absorbed the, uh, the, the heat that we've produced since the Industrial Age uh, and also, you know, how it's biting back in the way of, uh, you know, tropical storms and rising sea levels and so on. So uh, the uh, Madrid conference, from my point of view, is going to be very important from, you know, really bringing uh, the ocean considerations into the climate negotiations uh, at, at, in a central way. Uh, and then how does that uh, help us when we get to Glasgow next year? Well, one of the things that the ocean does give is um, is ways of um, is ways of lowering our greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, if you think of uh, offshore energy, for example, the renewable energy thing, this is emerging uh, beyond solar as the great source of renewable energy, you know, wind power in particular. Uh, so that's something that the ocean uh, will will give. Uh, if you think about sustainable aquaculture, the fact that you know things like uh, red meat industry on land are uh, getting to a point where they're unsustainable in planetary terms, uh, we can look at the ocean for the alternative source of protein, not chasing wild stock, but having sustainable aquaculture, new practices of aquaculture. So again, food. And then if you look at health, the ocean can give so much there as well, of course. Uh, so these are these are ocean's contributions to uh, what lies ahead for humanity. Speaking with Peter Thompson, the United Nations Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Ocean, just to keep everybody who is following us on Twitter or otherwise engaged in following the news online, don't forget, uh, if you're going to be tweeting about this, use the hashtag OceanDecade. Peter, you use the term biting back, and of course, that's tempered with the fact of the role that the ocean plays in just the ways that you describe. And so, 
for some folks, especially people who are living in coastal communities, uh, some 680 million people, I think, around the world live in coastal communities. We have megacities like New York, for example, that are on the ocean. Uh, Hurricane Sandy's impact on the Mid-Atlantic and, of course, uh, its death destruction. But images of seeing the Atlantic pouring down the steps of subway stations in lower Manhattan, it really focuses your attention. Um, Of course, I see that as a message. Other people see that as a problem. How do we change that thinking? I think the majority of people on the planet now realize that we've got a problem in terms of uh, you know, what global warming is doing to uh, extreme events, be it drought, be it um, frequency and severity of tropical storms, uh, be it these firestorms that you're seeing around the world. I think the majority of humanity understand that we've got a real problem here uh, and that we've got to address the chief cause of that problem, which is our greenhouse gas emissions. The majority of the people may indeed have it, but we also see that there are a few people, some people in positions of power, who don't. Yeah, but that's the way humanity is. You know, there are some people who think that uh, vaccinating your kids against uh, deathly diseases is not a good idea. But, you know, thankfully the majority do, and as a result we have a healthy world. So it's the same thing with climate change. The great majority of us realise that we have to act on lowering our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, you know, the penny hasn't dropped for some yet, in some cases for selfish reasons, in others because they maybe just don't understand the science of it. But, um, the, you know, it's clear for all but the blind to see. You know, all you have to re- do is read the IPCC report on, uh, you know, what 1.5 and 2 degrees difference means. It's set out there very clearly. And the IPCC is not some strange you know, sequestered groups. The IPCC is the gathering of our best environmental scientists on the subject, you know, from all around the world. Uh, So, you know, who else are we going to go to? You know, when you're sick, you go to the doctor to get cured. Uh, You know, there's some people who would, you know, not go to the doctor for philosophical reasons, but the great majority of us go to the doctor. So in this case, who's the doctor for us when we've got a sick world? Uh, it's the environmental scientists who are going to give us the, the, the uh, analysis and the treatment. And the treatment in this case is lower our greenhouse gas emissions. We won't save life in the ocean without doing that because greenhouse gas emissions are the prime enemy of ocean's health. That is what's causing the acidification. That's what's causing the loss of oxygen. That's what's causing the rising sea levels. Ocean Decade is a way of focusing the Ocean Decade declared by the United Nations. You are playing a central role with that. To what extent is this Ocean Decade different than any other UN decade? Uh, yeah, well, funny enough, I've just come from a meeting with the Intergovernmental Ocean Conference where you know I was emphasizing that very point. There have been many decades in the past where um, you know they've come and gone and nobody's noticed much. Uh, this decade is different. Why is this decade different? Because, as I mentioned to you already, we're in an existential crisis, and that coral analogy that I gave you is uh, it very clearly demonstrates that. So you'll notice that, when I, that I said, we don't know the answer to what it means if all coral dies away. We know it won't be good, but we don't know the actual scientific answer. It's for questions like that 
that the United Nations, all 193 member states, by consensus, agreed that we should have this decade of ocean science. It's, it's estimated by a lot of scientists that we only know about 5% of what's going on in the ocean in terms of the ecosystem. And uh, that is the, what we're going to have to find out during the decade, which runs from 2021 to 2030. We're going to have to find out that other 95%. And why do we need to know that? Because when we get to 2030 or thereabouts, we're going to have to start making some very serious decisions about our place on this planet. Decisions that we haven't had to make in the past. You know, things like carbon sequestration, carbon capture and so on. And we need to use that decade as productively as possible to get the best information that we've got so that we can make those decisions in a rational way. I sometimes hear people talk about the fact that if we don't do this right, the planet, the planet's going to die. In fact, I think the planet's going to survive. The question is whether we survive with it. Absolutely right, George. Um, you know, people talk about our ocean and our this and our that. The fact is the planet will continue, as you say. The ocean will continue, as you say. <laughs> it's a question of uh, it, will it be producing enough oxygen for us to breathe? Uh, it'll also be still be producing some, but will it be enough for uh, us all to breathe? Uh, will, um... yeah, you know. Take your breath away. <laughs> it does, just to think about it. But um, the reason it takes my breath away is that we're still doing so much to damage the welfare of the ocean. You know, we dump a garbage truck's worth of trash and plastic, of plastic trash, into the ocean every minute of every day. And for all the talk, we're still doing that. We overfish the ocean. 33% of wild stock is being overfished. So, you know, that's why it takes my breath away that, you know, we know we've got a problem and yet we're not uh, taking action yet. We are, um, I think, considering the problem and, and considering what needs to be done. But in terms of really taking the action, I'm not seeing enough yet. You're listening to Many Voices, One World. We're talking with Peter Thompson UN Secretary General, Special Envoy for the Ocean. Remember, uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at UNESCO. And uh, don't forget the hashtag, in, in particular for this issue, hashtag Save the Ocean. Peter, I want to pick up on something that you just uh, that you were just talking about when you mentioned that we dump globally a garbage truck a minute of every hour of every day into the ocean of plastic and other trash. Now, that garbage doesn't just appear. It starts in our households, which means there is definitely a role that we play as individuals in solving this problem and saving our planet. I 100% agree with you, George. I uh, we can't just leave it to governments. Uh, individuals, communities, cities, we all have a role to play in this. Uh, I remember when I got the light about plastic uh, many decades ago now, but it was um, our daughter coming back from school who uh, insisted on our family taking a more responsible attitude. You know, families are really important in this as well. Um, I think if I was uh, involved in rewriting the SDGs and I was involved in writing them, but if I was involved in rewriting them, 
I would add the word radically to SDG 12. SDG 12 calls for a change in our consumption and production patterns. I think we need to radically change those uh, those consumption and production patterns. And at an individual level, I've done so much in my own life, not to blow my own trumpet, but just to demonstrate how easy it is, and I'm sure it's, this is happening all around the place, moving away from red meat. You know, my wife and I were looking at a, a report on what beef was doing to the planet, and then we looked at a photograph of our grandchildren and said, which do we love more, you know, hamburgers or our grandchildren? And then we didn't eat red uh, beef again from that day. You know, these kind of decisions are easy to make. Plastic in your life, single-use plastic, it's, it's easy to say no to it. Well, it's not that easy, actually. We studied it for quite a long time as to how to make our house plastic-free. It's very doable, though. I'm old enough to remember a day when there was no plastic and it was very nice in the world, thank you, without it. So it's not this uh, absolutely necessary product for human civilization that it's so often portrayed as. Uh, But uh, the main thing I'd like to say to your listeners is, you know, we have a plan to, to correct all this. And it's a very clear plan, and it's a plan which was painstakingly put together by humanity through our leaders and our countries at the United Nations, and it was adopted in 2015. And I'm referring to the Paris Climate Agreement, and I'm referring to the 230 Sustainable Development Agenda with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals. That package, that plan, if we faithfully implement that by 2030 we will indeed have uh, reversed this cycle of decline that we're in in our uh, relationship with the planet. And everything will be fine for our great-grandchildren. But it's if we carry on on our current path that we are facing this terrible time. Secretary General of the United Nations has set it out very clearly. We have to get the world to a net-zero carbon world by 2050. Uh, that's the end point of this plan, and I firmly believe we'll get there because I think in the end common sense will, will rule for humanity. We, we bend in the direction of our own survival, after all. Everything will be fine. I think, is that is that really true? Because I, and not to, I, I don't want to dwell on the negative, but I think we have to also be realistic that some of the damage done is done. Definitely. If you look at the ocean, we can fix pollution by 2030. You know, and that's not just plastic. That's chemical pollution. That's uh, pollution from agricultural and industrial systems. That's getting our sewage systems worked out and everything. We can do that by 2030. Uh, just need to concentrate on it. fisheries. Is the same. We can, you know, the ocean is very forgiving when it comes to biodiversity, and we can get our house in order on fisheries. Uh, the other ones, you're quite right. The damage has been done. Coral reefs, for example. Yes, but we can save coral if we if we can keep the temperatures at around 1.5, and we're not at 1.5 yet. But you know, acidification, deoxygenation, warming—that process is going to continue for hundreds of years now because of what we've done since the beginning of the industrial age. But do things right uh, now. Uh, and operate according to the plan which I set out, the Paris Climate Agreement, 2030 Development Agenda, and uh, we will have stopped the rot. Uh, yes, the effects will continue on for hundreds of years, but we will not be taking our descendants towards disaster, which we're currently doing. Uh, so it's very doable for us to turn this around, but we haven't got a lot of time to do it. Most people say it's a, it's a period of about 10 years in which we have to do the right thing by way of our planet. You're traveling around the world. You're meeting with leaders, with groups, with organizations, with individuals. Can you give me an idea of how you see the momentum building in the 
mindset of, of people. You know, I don't meet too many climate deniers now. I know they're out there and you read about them in the newspaper and we have some political leaders even who are of that persuasion. But uh, a majority of people have got it. You know, the message takes a while to get through. You know, not everybody reads scientific reports. But I think the message is clear now. People have got it. Mm-hmm. As I say, it's for all but the blind to see that. And uh, I'm sure the blind are better than most of us in reading the braille of these reports uh, and knowing that, uh, you know, we are in deep trouble if we don't turn things around. So uh, the message is there. The question is, you know, how do we bring these changes in? And those are coming. Uh, I think you'll find that they will uh, snowball as we get into the 1920s. You know, things like electric cars, offshore energy, that sort of stuff. Uh, and and a change in attitude towards our consumption patterns. And, you know, we're going to have to be quite harsh on ourselves and maybe start living the way our parents and grandparents lived in many ways rather than the sort of self-indulgent ways which we have become accustomed to since the 1980s. wasn't so bad before all of this. I, I, have, I have images and memories of visiting my family in northern Greece, in the mountains of northern Greece. No electricity, no running water. And if you ran into somebody and you said, well, they are, look pretty healthy, and my, once saw my great aunt carrying probably about 20 kil- kilos of um, kindling hmm. on her back, and she was about 87, <laughs> coming out of the mountain, uh, out, out of the, you know, the... the, yeah. uh, the uh, the tree line. I bet she had a great diet. Too. And she had a very great diet, which was mostly vegetables, yeah. in fact, because you didn't slaughter yeah. the uh, the sheep just because you felt like you wanted to have uh, lamb yeah. chops. <laughs> I mean, those that was done for yeah. special occasions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they would have. Everybody would have known how to sing and play musical instruments too in the family gathering. Absolutely, and at the top of their lungs, with some who thought that they could sing, better off not. But <laughs> nevertheless, in, indeed, everybody had a good song to sing. I, I'm, that really resonates with me, George, because when my wife and I got married back in 1973, I was district officer in a part of Fiji where my whole district there was no electricity. Uh, you know, when it got dark, it got dark. And yes, everybody knew how to play the guitar, or at least sing along with the, whoever was playing the guitar. You know, we entertained ourselves. We, we often look back on that time and say, wow, that was actually the best quality time in our lives. You know, I've since lived in all the great cities of the world, New York and London and, and Sydney and places like that. But in terms of quality of life, I think back to that time in Nauvoo District in Fiji is probably the best quality that we had in terms of human interaction and uh, courtesy and respect. You know, sometimes we, we turn to those um, people who have reflected on, on life, and in their words we sometimes find a message. And I, I know that in particular... Pablo Neruda, for you, mm. is someone who, who, who seems to have brought things together, the famous rioter, poet, Pablo Neruda. Maybe we could end on that note, Peter Thompson. Sure. Of Happy to do that. You know, I, I uh, often use this, the, the uh, first verse of his poem, The Sea, uh, it's particularly um, apt that, I, that I'd read it uh, here in UNESCO because he was Chile's uh, representative to UNESCO back in the day. Of course, Pablo Neruda won the Nobel Prize for literature and so on. 
But this is about the sea. And uh, I, in fact, I, I was reading this to a group in Montreal yesterday. And I said to them, uh, just put your hand up to your ear as you listen to it. And imagine you've got a seashell at your ear. Because that's what this poem is like for me when I read Neruda. And I'll only read the first verse. But please, go to uh, your your computers or wherever you go for it. Uh, look up The Sea by Pablo Neruda because uh, the, the other verses are pretty good as well. Very good. Anyway, here's the first verse. I need the sea because it teaches me. I don't know if I learn music or awareness. If it's a single wave or its vast existence or only its harsh voice or its shining suggestion of fishes and ships the fact is that until I fall asleep, in some magnetic way, I move in the university of the waves. I encourage you to go down to the sea and see what the University of the Waves uh, tells you, George. Peter Thompson, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a real pleasure, and we'd love to have you come back and uh, keep us updated on uh, how the world is doing and what we need to do in order to continue to move in the right direction. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Peter Thompson, United Nations Secretary General Envoy, Special Envoy for the Ocean. This is George Papianis, and you've been listening to Many Voices, One World. I wish you a great day, wherever you may be.